0: Hello! Welcome back to Historian Splaining. This will be the second edition of Myths of the Month and it will be for patrons only, so you should be finding it uh, on Patreon. And for this Myth of the Month I'm going to talk about the Exodus, which is a myth that many of us are Commemorating right now by observing the holiday of Passover. It's come up in the news in many ways, both because of a new book, which I'll talk about, which makes a certain historical argument about the Exodus, and also because Jeremy Corbyn just got in trouble for attending a Passover Seder with a Jewish group that not everyone likes or approves of. So There are always reasons for this story to come back into the news over and over again, just as it appears again and again all through the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, as I'll point to, and as it's come up over and over all through Western history for more than 2,000 years. So I discussed the Exodus a little bit when I talked about the origins of Judaism, and arguably the Exodus myth, which holds that the Jews or the Israelites or the Hebrews began as a group of enslaved people in Egypt and then were led out of Egypt by the Hebrew God as represented by the prophet Moses. This is really arguably the fundamental founding myth of the Jewish people. Now, as you probably know, there are other founding myths that purportedly tell of even earlier events like Abraham and his covenant with God and the other patriarchs that followed after Abraham. However, it's really the Exodus myth that we know repeats over and over again and is constantly pointed back to as the sort of root of the Jewish people, the beginning of their special covenant with God and it seems from textual evidence also to be the earliest myth about the Jewish people that was told so in these ways it really can be seen as the most important and fundamental charter myth in a sense of the Jewish people as a group and like many creation myths it explains the origins of this group it justifies why they should see themselves as a kind of unified whole. It justifies their laws and customs that define and distinguish them. And in the particular case of the Jews, this myth justifies their monolatry, right? Their devotion, their special devotion to one particular group God. And it also justifies their social and political independence, Right? Since it is the Jewish God who actually delivered the Israelites from slavery, the Israelites owe this God their exclusive loyalty and and obedience, right in a way that they do not to other people. okay And it's not surprising that this this sort of myth came about in the particular time that it did at a time when, The actual political independence of the Israelite kingdom was under threat and disputed. And I'll talk about that more, hopefully, in a few minutes. The Exodus myth is also a classic foundational myth in that it is continually being relived. Okay, so just like I talked about with the myth of the first Thanksgiving that Americans are constantly reenacting every year by holding Thanksgiving gatherings and dinners, likewise the Exodus myth is continually reenacted in a very sophisticated way at ritualized yearly dinners and even specifically dinners at which particular symbolic foods are eaten Okay, so once again, the, this notion that you are what you eat and that by eating certain foods in a ceremonialized way, you are uh, maintaining your belonging to an organically unified group. So, let me go through a few of these points that I brought up and illustrate what I'm talking about. So, I'll talk about where this myth seems to have come from and how it was composed based on the limited evidence that we have, what it seems to mean uh, symbolically, why it takes the certain form that it does, and how it can be interpreted. And I'll discuss the degree to which it might be historical. Okay, The, the question of historicity, as scholars say, is are there real events underlying this mythic story? And lastly, how the myth has been used and reapplied by all sorts of people through history. So to begin with this question of origins, where did this story come from? Well, we can't say when all of the various aspects and details of the story arose. And it seems that some form of the story probably predates the use of writing. Right, goes back into an oral tradition that predates any written documents that we have. So we can't say exactly how far back it goes. But there is good reason to believe that the story of the Exodus, in some basic form, is really the oldest story contained in the Bible. And that's because it seems most likely, based on linguistic evidence, that the oldest passage contained in the Bible as we now see it is the so-called Song of the Sea or Song of Miriam that appears in the book of Exodus and that, according to the narrative, was sung by women after the Israelites had crossed through the Red Sea. Okay, And the language and the vocabulary of this song appear to be already quite archaic, even by the standards of the earliest Uh, Written versions of the book of Exodus, and we have reason to believe that this verse song was composed several hundred years before anyone wrote it down. Uh, Scholars guess probably in about the 12th century BC. So it seems from the earliest sources that we can find that Israelites believed that at least in some part they had originated from slaves who escaped from Egypt and crossed over or somehow crossed through a sea. Okay, And these are important points of ambiguity, which I'll come to later. Okay, We, we don't know from this earliest Song of the Sea exactly what the body of water is or how the Israelites got past it but we know that they believed they were escaping from the forces of the pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. We don't know exactly how many people it was. It doesn't specify. And there are all sorts of aspects that are unclear about this earliest form of the story. It is interesting, though, that this earliest element of the Exodus story that we see in the Song of the Sea apparently resembles other creation myths and origin myths told by other Middle Eastern people in the ancient world. Okay, It was common for Mesopotamian peoples and others around the region to claim that the universe had been created by some sort of god of order or god of light who battles the forces of chaos and evil, particularly as embodied in the sea. Right, There are many stories of battles against... The sea itself, or sea monsters, okay, and these show up again in some form in the Hebrew Bible as well, in figures like the Leviathan, or in Jonah and the Whale, Uh, the, the notion that the sort of god of order has to battle the chaotic and mysterious forces of the deep, okay, and so a certain variation on that theme we can see in this Song of the Sea. It seems that over time, after the composition of that song, the story of the Exodus was gradually elaborated and filled out, and in particular, the central character of Moses is discussed and described in great detail in early documents that then were integrated into what we now see as the book of Exodus. As I discussed in my lecture about who wrote the Hebrew scriptures, the books of Genesis and Exodus are apparently the oldest books in the Hebrew Bible, and they are composed of various elements that at some point were stitched together into something like coherent storylines. And the story of Moses and the Exodus are particularly prominent and important in what scholars call the E-document, right? So most scholars, not all, but a large body of scholarship holds that much of the material in Genesis and Exodus was drawn from a particular hypothetical document which used the title Elohim to refer to God and so for that reason is called the E-document and the author is sometimes called the, the Elohist And it seems that this e-document was composed in the northern kingdom of Israel in about the 8th or so century BCE. So it's among the oldest sources for the Bible. And it holds Moses to be a particularly important figure, whereas the J-document was more likely written in the southern kingdom of Judah and it focuses more on Abraham and seems to look at Abraham as the sort of important founding figure of the Jewish people. So a lot of what we see as the Exodus story today apparently came from this e-source, okay? But it was not all from the e-source, rather it was gradually woven together from different sources all around, the, all around Judea northern southern and eastern versions of the story were all pieced together and this assemblage was performed probably in the era under Persian rule right so so some scholars over time have thought that maybe it was a bit earlier it might have been just before the Babylonian captivity in the 500s BC some saw it as during the Babylonian captivity scholars today tend to lean towards even a bit later in the the Persian era after the return from the Babylonian captivity, right? And there's evidence in the text that the story existed in some form for a very long time before it was edited together into what we now see as the book of Exodus. And there's actually evidence in other texts. For example, the very early prophets uh, Amos and Micah refer to God leading the Israelites out of Egypt, Okay, so this idea that the Israelites stemmed from slaves who were freed from Egypt is is very early, but we don't get a complete version of the story until we have the Book of Exodus. It seems that in its earliest version, when the Book of Exodus was first stitched together, possibly around the 400s BC, roughly, the story hinged on what scholars call a theophany, an encounter with God or a sighting of God, okay? The sort of central turning point of the book was Moses witnessing God on Mount Sinai. Later, teachings like the Ten Commandments were added in, right? So the notion that uh, that the, the book of Exodus records Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt taking them to Mount Sinai, receiving the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and then finally leading them into the Promised Land. That whole storyline didn't take the final form that we see until the P, the priestly source, added in this part about the Ten Commandments, maybe in the 400s or even 300s BCE, right? So it was a long process. So when we ask this question, where did Exodus, the story of Exodus come from, What is its origin? How old is it? There isn't one single answer, right? It depends on what sort of element you're looking for and what you consider to be the basic story. But at least some element of it goes as far back in the Hebrew scriptures as we can possibly find. Okay, so what do we make of this myth, this idea that There was a people called the Hebrews or the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, who were led out of Egypt by a prophet called Moses who called on God to bring down plagues upon the Egyptians, who demanded that the Israelites be freed, who led them through a sea and into the Sinai and finally the Promised Land. Well, there are very interesting Elements, distinct elements in the story as we find it in the Hebrew Bible that, that resemble other myths from many other societies and many other time periods and that seem to have some sort of special narrative importance or narrative power, okay? In particular, this central character of Moses, he follows certain patterns that we also see in other classic mythic heroes. Uh, He's a person of unknown or mysterious parentage, right? According to Exodus, Moses was a Hebrew child. He was born at a time when the Egyptian government had decreed that Hebrew boys should be killed by drowning. But instead he was set afloat in a sort of basket on the Nile. He was discovered, brought into the imperial palace and raised as a prince. But later in his life he had to discover his true origins as a Hebrew and hence take up his destiny as, as a liberator of his true people who were the Hebrew people. Okay? And he had to find his true family consisting in his brother and sister. This story of being set afloat and rescued from a basket is very similar to the legend of King Sargon of Akkad, who was an Akkadian ruler who conquered the civilization of Sumer in Mesopotamia, and is really the first sort of important political and military figure in known human history, really. Not only that, but according to early legend, Sargon of Akkad had an encounter with the goddess Ishtar while he was working in a garden. He was a sort of humble gardener who was, in some way, inspired and called upon by this appearance of the goddess uh, to become a leader. Okay, and if you are familiar with the biblical story, it's very similar to what supposedly happens to Moses, where he uh, is working as a humble shepherd in the land of Midian and he sees an appearance of a god who commands him to go back into Egypt and lead his people. Okay, not only that, but also the story of how Moses ended up in this situation. He kills an overseer who is cruelly mistreating slaves in Egypt, and hence he flees into Midian, into a sort of self-imposed exile from which he then returns. And... Others have pointed out this is extremely similar to an early Egyptian legend, which survives in many copies the legend of Sinuhe, who also apparently overhears or witnesses something that causes him to flee from Egypt. He lives in exile and then is able to return to Egypt. Okay, so in all of these ways, we see concordances and similarities to other early Near Eastern and Middle Eastern legends of heroes and leaders. As a sort of typical classic hero with mysterious parentage, who has to flee into exile, return, discover who he truly is, he follows a a pattern that's been pointed out by anthropologists, especially famously by uh, Joseph Campbell in The Hero with a Thousand Faces that, uh, he he goes through similar trials to to other classic heroes, you know, Orpheus or Achilles. Uh, he has a sort of dark father and a light father. Okay, uh, a sort of uh, bad or sinister father figure in this case, the Pharaoh, and he has to choose instead a light father, a more honorable and just father figure to follow. In Moses's case, you could say that is God. And he has to discover his true parentage, which one could take, arguably, in the way that Joseph Campbell does, as a metaphor for people's discovery of their identities, right, and shaping of themselves, okay? The story of Moses can be seen on one level as uh, a symbol of people having to choose who they are, what they stand for, what they believe in, and what they're going to do with their lives, okay? Okay. Now naturally, the story of Moses has been questioned uh, historically, right? as all of the Exodus has been, and I'll get to that uh, more broadly in a minute, but many of the people who share similar experiences to Moses, according to our earliest stories, many of them apparently are fictitious, but others are real, you know, Sargon of Akkad was a real historical person, right? And the fact that the story of Moses has been shaped or reworked or embellished in such a way as to fit this sort of pattern of the classic hero, this does not necessarily mean that he didn't exist. The name Moses apparently is of Egyptian origin Right? And this has led many to question whether it's true at all that Moses was, in fact, a Hebrew or an Israelite, or if he was simply an Egyptian. Right, And famously, Sigmund Freud put forward a theory in his late book, uh, Moses and Monotheism. He puts forward a theory that Moses was, in fact, a natural-born Egyptian, and that he was a, de- a, a monotheist, a devotee of the sun god Aten. And we do know that in the 14th century BCE, so possibly roughly around the period when the exodus might have happened, we know that there was a particular pharaoh, Akhenaten, who instituted a reform in Egypt cultivating devotion to one god, right? So there was a a period of monotheism at the imperial court in Egypt. And Freud theorized that Moses might have been a follower or even a priest of this monotheist cult who then fell out of favor and out of power after the death of the pharaoh Akhenaten and that he then led some group of his followers out of Egypt which then became the Israelites. Okay, so this is an early, relatively early example of an attempt to trace a possible real historical event behind the legend of the Exodus as we read it. Modern-day scholars find this theory fairly tenuous. Okay, uh, the There really are very limited similarities between the monolatry of the Israelites, as far as we can reconstruct it, and the sun god cult of Akhenaten, and there really isn't much to substantiate a supposed link uh, between them. There are arguably some Egyptian influences and elements in the philosophy of of the Exodus myth, but present-day scholars tend to point more towards strong Persian influence, right? So remember that the version of the myth that we see today was assembled probably during the period of Persian rule in Judea, and we can see the idea of a god giving moral laws to a special prophet strict monotheism. These closely resemble the teachings of the prophet Zoroaster, who founded the philosophy of the Persian Empire, what we now call Zoroastrianism. There are also rituals that have long been connected to the Exodus myth. Passover rituals like the Seder plate that closely resemble ancient Persian practices. Okay? Uh, still today, many Iranians celebrate Noruz, a spring renewal festival in which one arranges symbolic foods representing spring and the renewal of life on a, a ceremonial dish, and it seems that the, the idea of the Seder plate basically mimics this, this Persian practice. Now, as I said, the the myth clearly is a constitutive sort of charter myth of the Jewish people, justifying why they exist as a distinct people, why they should be politically distinct and independent, but it also contains some fairly deeply embedded theological and even mystical meanings, right? So when we interpret the myth, we also have to consider how it deals with metaphysical and mystical questions of of god and god's relationship to the world and to people and a sort of pivotal moment of the myth as i mentioned before is the encounter with the burning bush okay and the burning bush is a very strange and puzzling passage in the book of exodus there are many different ways one could try to interpret it the passage says that Moses was shepherding and he saw a bush. It may have been there for any length of time before Moses noticed it, uh, but he looked at it and reportedly the branches of the bush were on fire and yet it was not consumed. Okay, People have interpreted this possibly as representing the Israelite people or representing suffering people in general, that they suffer but they are not destroyed. The bush then apparently speaks to Moses and commands him to return to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. Moses actually takes the step of asking the bush, uh, who or what are you? you know, and, and when I tell people that I am acting on your behalf, who should I say sent me? And the bush reportedly responds, Ehyeh asher ehyeh which in Hebrew roughly means I am what I am. The verb there, ehyeh, is just the first-person form of the verb ayya, which means to be or to exist. So it can be basically translated as I am what I am. What does this mean? Why would this deity say simply I am what I am? Well, this can be interpreted in many different ways. For one thing, it can be taken as dismissive. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what I am. Never mind, you're, you're asking the wrong question. It also can be taken as a kind of logical tautology, right? Just stating the only possible answer to the question, I am what I am, because by implication, it's impossible to say anything more, right? So in effect, the deity is saying, I I cannot define what I am. I'm somehow indefinable or ineffable. And we know that the passage then goes on to say that the bush told to Moses the God's true name, which was unutterable and unrepeatable, right? So there's a further implication that there's something about this God that simply can't be captured, can't be defined in words. Additionally, the, this verb ehyeh and its root ahya sound very similar to the other tribal name that is also applied to God in the books of Genesis and Exodus, which is something like Yahweh, okay? Yahweh or Yahweh. And so arguably this answer could also be taken as a kind of play on words, right? I, I am what I am and... And simply by being what I am, I am also this God. In later years, uh, rabbis, Jewish rabbis who spoke Greek, undertook to translate the Torah into Greek in what's called the Septuagint. And they, in translating this phrase into Greek, they translated it as I am the being or even just I am being, Right. So, as I said, the root of ahia is simply being or existence. So, on another level, you could interpret it in a sort of metaphysical way that the deity is saying, "I am simply existence itself." Right? I am being. So, the burning bush, as I said, it can it can be taken. It's very strange. It's very ambiguous. It can be taken to have many levels of possible meaning, and it is. The first theophany in in the book of exodus right it is it seems to be a point where Moses is witnessing this God, some manifestation of this God or of simply God. This happens again later on Mount Sinai, and in the passage concerning the Theophany on Mount Sinai, you know we're told that there was flashing light and swirling smoke. Uh, Moses disappeared up onto the mountain. And in his final encounter, after he comes back down the mountain, his face is glowing. You know, he somehow encountered something so powerful, so radiant, that he himself has taken on a radiance. And this glow of his face was later translated into Latin as a, a corona, which could then be also be misunderstood as referring to horns, right? The the, the Latin root corn can also mean horns, and and hence, this seems to be the origin of the mistaken notion that Moses had horns, right? And we see that like in Michelangelo's famous sculpture of Moses, he has horns. Nonetheless, the the idea of a close or direct encounter with God seems to be really central to Exodus, okay? Apart from its political meanings, its historical meanings, it's trying to also convey something about the mystical and metaphysical relationship between human beings and God and between the Jews and God. Of course it also has clear ethical and political implications, right? The the Exodus both according to its authors and according to later biblical authors who referred to the Exodus, the myth was supposed to convey The notion that the Israelite God uh, favors uh, freedom, some sort of justice, and opposes uh, tyranny and, and oppression. The Exodus myth is referred to over and over again all through the rest of the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. It's referred to repeatedly by the prophets like Amos and Micah, whom I mentioned, by Isaiah, later also in Judges, and the the Ketuvim, especially the Psalms, uh, it comes up over and over again, and the slogan that one hears again and again, both in the Torah and in later biblical writings, is, be kind to the strangers among you, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, right? That is a repeating refrain, in Exodus and Leviticus, and in other books, uh, you must treat foreigners and and servants among you with justice and tolerance, because you yourself were in that situation in Egypt. Of course, as many of you know, the the Exodus myth does involve all sorts of uh, suffering and vengeance brought down upon the Egyptian people, which can strike you know, modern people today is very unsavory and and disturbing. And many biblical scholars and commentators through the centuries have sort of grappled with what seems to be a contradiction, right? That the Exodus teaches us to be kind and tolerant of strangers and to lift the oppressed. And yet we see suffering, including even the deaths of children, brought down upon uh, the Egyptians. And different Analysts have dealt with this contradiction in different ways, but one prominent way of interpreting it was put forward by medieval drash or medieval commentaries, including by Maimonides, the most famous medieval Jewish philosopher, which looks at the supposed reason why God brought down plagues and suffering upon the Egyptians. And you see in the book of Exodus, uh, repeatedly, the book says that either Pharaoh hardened his heart to Moses' pleas, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? And this is a very strange phrasing that we see, and it shows up in both forms at different points. And Maimonides and other philosophers have argued that initially, Pharaoh chose to ignore the pleas for freedom and mercy for the slaves, and that over time, as he did this, it became a sort of automatic habit, right? And and so when these passages say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what that really means is there's a law of nature, a sort of law of nature written into the universe that causes people to become callous and hardened to others' suffering after they have made a repeated habit of it. And this is what made it ultimately impossible for pharaoh and his advisors to relent and to give freedom and mercy to the israelites thus causing ultimately these plagues to come down because it was the only way uh, within the sort of allowable laws of nature for the situation to change okay so this can be seen as a way of trying to interpret the book in such a way as to reconcile this strange uh, contradiction and you see this sort of thinking ritualized in the Passover Seder where for example one is supposed to spill a certain amount of wine commemorating each of the plagues uh, brought down upon the Egyptians in order to signify that one's joy is diminished right by the suffering of of others whether those be you know allies or enemies. uh, it, It diminishes the joy of the occasion that people suffered. Now all of these questions of interpretation, of course, stand apart from, but cannot really be fully grappled with without the distinct question of whether the myth is based on actual events. Right. So the question of historicity should not exactly be stated as did these events really happen, right? Okay, we probably can never know. We have no direct access to what really happened, but we can ask, does this particular source, the book of Exodus, does it have any corroboration in other sources? Okay, do other sources like other documents or our archaeological evidence, linguistic evidence, is there anything else that does or does not accord with the claims that we see in the Book of Exodus. And if they do, then of course, that really throws a different light on how we interpret the Book of Exodus. Now, some some would argue, you know, some literary scholars might argue it doesn't matter, right? The the work of literature is complete and it's a work unto itself, and it it makes no difference what really happened, in air quotes. But I would argue that historically it does matter, right? If we're going to try to ask why does the book of Exodus say that Egyptian children died in the 10th plague, then it makes a difference whether or not it really happened, right? If something like this really happened, then the people who composed the myth— were trying to put an explanation on things that they actually witnessed or or information that was given to them that they believed was true. And that's different from they made it up, right? It, I, I think that clearly that changes the meaning and the significance of the story, whether or not the people who composed it based it on real events and or reports of real events. So... Are any of the events described in the book of Exodus historical in the sense that they might be corroborated by other sources? Well, most scholars would tend to say that the basic answer to that is no. Okay? There is no solid, strong corroboration telling us that the story as it is told in the book of Exodus really happened. Okay. There is no Egyptian record of a large body of Israelite slaves, there's no record of a series of 10 plagues, there's no record of millions of slaves suddenly getting up and leaving, uh, there is no clear archaeological indication of a large migration of Israelites or other Semitic people through the Sinai region into Judea or Canaan, and it seems to be, by and large, a an, an origin myth that was developed for social and theological purposes in later years, okay? So the basic answer is no, but you, it's not that simple. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking so much about historicity. There, It's more complicated than that. We can say right off the bat, the Book of Exodus claims that a massive migration of hundreds of thousands of people, probably over a million left as part of this kind of calamitous event that almost surely cannot be true you know the the population of egypt in the second millennium bc is estimated to have been no more than about three million people and there would have been clear archaeological and historical records if suddenly a third of the population got, got up and left okay it would have been a massive demographic disaster and that that just did not happen however that doesn't mean that the exodus could not have happened on some much smaller scale that it might the story might be based on some particular event or maybe a, several different events that happened on a smaller scale okay and the historian the historian Richard Elliot Friedman whom I'll talk about later has actually put forward a particular argument for the historicity of the exodus and he's he says, quote, Herodotus claims that a million Persians invaded Greece in 480 BC. The numbers were undoubtedly exaggerated, as in most ancient records, but nobody claims that the invasion of Greece never happened. So the mere fact that a large-scale exodus of a million-plus people never happened doesn't mean that it couldn't be a very exaggerated or distorted version of some real event. Now, when we look at the other end in Canaan, what at that time was called Canaan, what we today might call Israel and Palestine, again, there is no archaeological corroboration of the Exodus story. But rather, as I said in my lecture about Judaism, all archaeological evidence indicates that the earliest Israelites who emerged and formed towns and communities in the uplands of Canaan in the second millennium BCE, all archaeological evidence points to them being lower-class Canaanites who had migrated out of the Canaanite cities and established separate communities in the uplands. There is no evidence that there was any large population of people from Egypt coming into Canaan at that time. So then, how is it that anyone could claim that there is any historical basis for the story of the Exodus. Well, the evidence is textual, linguistic, and circumstantial, okay? There are various reasons to think that the basic outline of the story was plausible, at least on a small scale, talking about maybe thousands of people rather than millions. And there is linguistic and textual evidence suggesting that there may have been some real events that inspired the story okay for one thing we know that there were Semite migrants and slaves in Egypt especially in the eastern delta area of Egypt in the 1100s 1200s BCE so that the area closer to Canaan it happens that this area of the eastern delta was frequently flooded and that very little textual evidence or artistic evidence uh, survives, it has been, you know, destroyed by the environment, so it only makes sense that if there was some population of Semites who migrated into that area or who were, as we know, happened, who were enslaved as a result of border wars with the Canaanite civilization, that some of them might have been there and they didn't leave behind much detailed uh, records. We know that as with any large slave population, there were sometimes rebellions and escapes, right? Egypt, like all ancient civilizations, Egypt depended on slave labor and had a large slave population, and this would always lead to a certain degree of conflict and instability. So the basic idea that there might have been some group of Semite slaves uh, in Egypt who eventually rebelled or escaped is not at all implausible. It's not surprising that there might not be a record of this, okay? Our, our textual records surviving from ancient Egypt are fairly few, and they tend largely to be chronicles, okay? And chronicles, as I said before, are propagandistic. They tend to celebrate the power and achievements of a ruler or a government, and they don't dwell very much on the defeats or the failures, so it's not surprising, you know, whatever the history of the Israelites might actually be, it's not surprising that Egyptian records do contain a reference on the Merneptah of Egypt defeating a people called Israel, but they don't have any reference to such a people raining down destruction on Egypt and, and leaving Egypt. Among these textual evidences is the fact, as I mentioned before, that Moses is an Egyptian name? That, as I also mentioned in my lecture on Judaism, the Hebrew, an early Hebrew name of God, uh, Yahweh or Yahweh, seems to be almost surely derived from a Midianite deity called Yahu or Yahweh, something ex- you know extremely close, composed of the same sounds. And the story of Exodus claims that this god was first encountered and first revealed his true name, which might be this name, Yahu or Yahuwah, to Moses in the land of Midian. Right. So, so we have that sort of basic, obvious textual and linguistic evidence linking the early Exodus story to, to Egypt and, and the Sinai region, which is where Midian is located. There is, as I mentioned before, the Akhenaten episode in the twelve hundreds, and we know that there was a uh, sort of grand vizier and high priest of the pharaoh Akhenaten, who was part of this monotheistic cult, who had a name basically something like Mose or Moses, something very close to to the name Moses, and and it may be that the Mythic figure of Moses that we read about might be in some way connected to or inspired by this Egyptian official. Furthermore, there was a period of Egyptian rule over most of the Canaanite cities, right? So there were frequent conflicts between Egypt and the Canaanite civilization, and there was a period of Egyptian rule. And so it's possible whether or not any Israelites originated from Egypt itself. It's possible that many of them came from these cities at a time when they were under Egyptian rule, and hence this is where the story began, and it later, sort of to add drama, was moved to Egypt proper, right? But that the germ of the story might be that there was some uh, Semitic group that was part of the origin of the Israelites that was under Egyptian rule and rebelled against it or escaped from it. Other scholars have also pointed to other possible connections. For example, the Hyksos, a sort of mysterious northern people who invaded and conquered Egypt for a period in the second millennium BC uh, and later were expelled. Uh, It it is possible that the story of the Exodus might have started from this Hyksos uh, episode. There are also other peoples, uh, the so-called Sea Peoples, also from the north who invaded and occupied Egypt for a time and then were expelled. So there are various episodes we do know about that could possibly form some basis for the Exodus story. And also many have speculated about possible concordance with natural events, right? So we have these very vivid Uh, striking episodes described in the Exodus, particularly the ten plagues, uh, which begins with rivers turning into blood and then is followed by a sort of wave of plagues including frogs, cattle disease, boils, and finally the death of the firstborn. Now some have pointed out that this series of plagues could actually follow a real pattern if there was seismic activity which could lead to hot gases, gas plumes in rivers and lakes which could then poison the water. When the water is poisoned, then frogs would come out of the water. Those frogs would then die. They would be fed upon by by bugs, they would putrefy leading to diseases and possibly eventually leading to to deaths. Uh, so it's it's very plausible that this story of the 10 plagues could be based on some real series of events with some sort of geologic origin right either poisonous gas plumes or algae plumes and maybe accompanied by other seismic activity like earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and if we read the later passages of exodus after the israelites leave from egypt we're told that they were led by a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And we're told that when Moses approached Mount Sinai, it was surrounded by thunder and lightning and clouds of smoke. And all of these descriptions certainly sound to me like uh, like a volcanic eruption or maybe a series of volcanic eruptions. And we know that if the Exodus story happened, we estimate that it's dated somewhere between about the 15th century and the 13th century BCE, more or less the end period of the Late Bronze Age. Okay, So it comes at about a time when several major civilizations like Egypt, Canaan, the Minoans, uh, Mesopotamia, and others, the Indus Valley, were closely connected and fell into a collapse. And we don't know exactly why that happened, but certainly one possible explanation that scholars have floated is a sort of rolling seismic disaster around the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean that disrupted trade and disrupted agriculture and led to famine and disease and the, the fall of this sort of late Bronze Age world order. And if that theory holds water, then it only makes sense that the disasters recounted in the Exodus story might fit into that episode, right? That we could be talking about seismic activity and resulting famines and plagues that may have actually happened. Scholars have also sometimes pointed to a particular early Egyptian document from several hundred years earlier called the Ipuwer Papyrus, which has a long sort of poem of lament Penned by someone simply called an Egyptian sage, and it describes a time of chaos when sort of the world is thrown into disorder, uh, cattle are dying, uh, servants are stealing the goods of their households and running away, and at one point it says the river is blood. So there are several aspects of this Ipuwer papyrus that seem strangely reminiscent of what we're told about in Exodus, okay? The the, the plagues beginning with rivers turning into blood, uh, the diseases, cattle deaths, and also in Exodus we're told that Moses demanded that the Israelites be allowed to leave Egypt and bring the kingdom's wealth with them. Now, one could say that therefore this means that the the Exodus events are sort of alternative version of the same story we see in the Ipuwer papyrus, that the that this papyrus represents an Egyptian corroboration of the Exodus story. But it's probably not that simple. Uh, for one thing, the Ipuwer papyrus seems to go back much earlier. It has a long catalog of disasters and outrages, And it may just be coincidence that these few seem so similar to what we see in the Exodus. It also, in my view, it probably means that the sort of events that we see described in Exodus were not totally unique, that they maybe happened from time to time through various periods of Egyptian history, that some sort of gas or material got into the Nile, caused algae plumes or poisonous plumes that turned the river red and that this led to various then cascading disasters and that when society was thrown into crisis by disease or famine that one thing that might happen is that servants would take advantage of the chaos and steal some things and run away right so if we look at it in this light it's we don't necessarily know that these two documents are somehow describing the same event, but they might be describing similar events that might have happened many times or happened periodically in ancient Egypt. Okay. Now, if we go back and remember that the Exodus myth is a sort of founding myth of a people, then clearly it's not it's not plausible historically in the way that it fits into the longer mythic history of the Jews or the Hebrews, right? So as I said before, it's in in another lecture, it's not really, it doesn't make sense to suppose that there was a people who originated from a particular patriarch named Abraham, that these people then all went to Egypt, that they were then all enslaved, that they then all were liberated, that they then all went to one place, uh, Judea, and that they then became uh, the Jews. It's, It's not believable that there weren't some people who either went somewhere else, or some who remained as slaves, or some who blended in and became Egyptians, or some who were not freed. It's just not believable that this whole mass of people all somehow moved uh, in tandem, particularly when, according to the myth itself, they were frequently feuding and dividing. Rather, it's long, to to many observers, it's long seemed much more likely that some group of Israelites, some group of Semitic slaves, or maybe just an amalgam of different groups, uh, somehow got out of Egypt And after that, they then retroactively adopted this mythic history and forged a sort of group identity. We all came from one place. We all descend from one patriarch figure. We all are devoted to one god. uh, We all have one destiny, right? It makes much more sense to think that this mythology was developed retroactively. So that has long seemed like a more plausible way of fitting the Exodus story into the historical origins of the Jewish people. However, as I said, this doesn't fit with the archaeological record, which tends to indicate that the earliest Israelites were Canaanites who emigrated from the Canaanite cities. And in order to reconcile these two, this conflict between the textual source in the book of Exodus and the archaeological evidence, more scholars have been gravitating towards a, a double theory, a two-origin theory, right, which basically holds that the Israelites mostly came from the Canaanite cities, but that some portion or subset of them also came from a group of emigrants out of Egypt. And part of why this two-origin theory has persisted and gained support is that it simply doesn't seem plausible either to think that the early Israelites were Canaanites and yet they incorrectly claimed to be descendant from slaves. It would be extremely strange and very much against the normal pattern for an ancient people to say that they came from slavery when they didn't, okay? That was not a source of honor or prestige in any way. And so the fact that Israelites told this origin story about themselves in, in and of itself makes it seem likely that there's some truth to it, right? So this two-origin theory, that there was a sort of blending where uh, certain Canaanite groups also absorbed emigrants from Egypt and adopted their mythology and adopted their deity is is gaining more and more support and in particular a new book that came out earlier this year called The Exodus by the historian Richard Elliot Friedman has sort of tied together various lines of argument and mustered uh, a new a new synthesis in support of the historicity of the Exodus story okay and Friedman you know he he certainly as I said before he does not claim that the Exodus was anything like the scale that it's supposedly reported as in the book of Exodus but it most likely was somehow based on a smaller exodus of Semitic or Canaanite slaves leaving Egypt who then integrated this story into the early mythology of of the Jews. So this idea that some subgroup of the early Israelites did in fact come from Egypt, Friedman uh, actually pins this down more specifically and puts forward the argument that the specific group that did emigrate from Egypt was the Levites. Okay, so... According to the Hebrew Bible, the the Israelite people comprised 12 tribes, okay? And one of these tribes was a priestly caste, okay? The tribe tasked with managing the worship at the Tabernacle and the Temple, okay? That's what we're told in the early uh in the early documents and it is corroborated in different ways by by archaeology and by other texts, that there were these 12 tribes and the Levites were a sort of um, priestly caste tribe. Now, Friedman, as others have before, points out that if we look at the individual names in the Hebrew Bible, all of the names assigned to Levite individuals are all Egyptian, their Egyptian names, whereas the names ascribed to members of other tribes are not Egyptian. Additionally, we can see certain important ritual practices attributed to the Levites in the Hebrew Bible, that seem to have direct Egyptian origins. Uh, the rite of circumcision. This was an Egyptian practice. Okay, it was practiced in ancient Egypt for thousands of years, and it seems likely that the Levites brought this ritual practice to the Israelites. Also, the tabernacle, okay? The Levites were tasked with creating and maintaining the tabernacle, according to the book of Exodus, and the tabernacle very closely mimics the design of it, the use of it, closely mimics the traveling war tent of the pharaoh Rameses the second okay which we also have described in detail in egyptian documents and all of these sort of egyptian practices and names that appear in the hebrew bible are all recorded in sources e p and d that scholars believe were written by Levites, okay, by Levite priests. okay. And you remember the main sources, according to the documentary hypothesis, are J, E, P, and D. And J is the only one that was not written by Levites or was, was not believed to be written by Levites. The others were written by Levites and they contain these specific uh, names and practices attached to the Levites that seem to be Egyptian in their character. Right? So these are among the reasons why Friedman argues that the Levites are the particular group that brought various ritual practices and teachings about this new God to the Israelite people and as the priestly class had the power and authority to assert them as the central practices and myths of the Israelites as a whole. He also further supports this argument with with an argument from, from absence. So, as I said, the so-called Song of the Sea or Song of Miriam is probably the oldest text in the Bible. Most tend to think that it is. Another text that is among the earliest incorporated into the Bible is another song, and particularly it's another song attributed to a woman, namely the Song of Deborah which appears in the Book of Judges. And this Song of Deborah, also most scholars, although there's not a complete consensus, most scholars tend to think it's very early, like 12th or 11th century BCE. Very archaic. It's a song of victory, celebrating a victory of the Israelites against Canaanite opponents. And it refers specifically to several of the israelite tribes right however one that it conspicuously leaves out is the levites okay there's no acknowledgement that the levites exist in this early text and we know that this text was composed in the northern area the sort of israel area of judea so it is quite separate and distinct from the Song of Miriam, which deals with the Exodus. And Friedman uses this to argue that the sort of earliest Israelite sources we have, like the Song of Deborah, uh, don't deal with the Exodus and also don't deal with Levites. Okay, And this, in his view, is because it was later, in later centuries, that the Levites migrated into Israel or, or the Canaan area integrated themselves in and brought the story of the Exodus and its various attached rituals and myths with them. Okay so it may seem strange, you know, why did the Israelites sort of uh, adopt this mythology when most of them weren't really from that origin? Well it may be that the sort of the prestige of the Levites made it appealing for Israelites to see themselves as coming from this exodus origin. Also, it, it gives a compelling story, as I said, of why the Jews or Israelites should be unified, why they should be devoted to one God, and why they should expect uh, protection and support against their oppressors from this God. Uh, and you can see a sort of similar case among Americans. You know, why do Americans celebrate Thanksgiving and why do we see the pilgrims as our forebears when most Americans aren't descended from Mayflower pilgrims, right? Certainly not today, but it makes for a sort of useful myth, right? We have a single point of origin. This gives us a national character and it's an origin that we can trace to escape from persecution, Uh, a journey into, into freedom from oppression, and so on. Okay. Basically, if we take this theory seriously, we have to entertain the idea that the Exodus story as we read it is not largely plausible, but that it was based on some sort of real events and that a group of people chose to adopt it as their collective founding myth. And in this light, it's not surprising that the same myth, the same story of Exodus has been adopted and reused by many different peoples all through history, right? It doesn't have to be limited to the Israelites, but it can be adopted by other people who also see themselves as new Israelites, right? New escapees from oppression or persecution, new pilgrims seeking freedom and seeking aid and liberation from their God, okay? Certainly Christians saw themselves this way, okay? And if we look at the way that Jesus himself is discussed in the New Testament, we see that these early Christian authors intentionally cast him as a kind of new Moses and cast the story of his life, death, and resurrection as a kind of new exodus, okay? According to the Gospels, that have childhood narratives uh, Jesus reportedly fled out of Judea or out of Palestine because he, his family had to escape the order by King Herod to kill this newborn uh, Messiah Right. so much as the Pharaoh ordered the killing of Hebrew boys so Herod supposedly tried to have Jesus killed his family fled into Egypt sojourned in Egypt and then came back to Palestine, right? Much like Exodus claims that the Hebrews went down into Egypt, were in exile and captivity and then returned. We can see the way gospels describe Jesus's ministry. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. As a mimicking of Exodus, okay? Why does this Sermon on the Mount, with its beatitudes, its repeated statements about blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, why is he described as going up on top of a hill and delivering this sermon? Well, it mimics Moses going up on Mount Sinai and then delivering to the people the Ten Commandments, right? This this repetitive list of commandments from God. Also, Jesus' miracles, like the transfiguration, in which he goes up uh, on top of a hilltop, is lifted up, and is seen glowing with a sort of supernatural heavenly glow coming off of his face, okay? Again, intentionally mimicking Moses going on Mount Sinai and taking on this kind of heavenly glow as he encounters God, okay? The liberation of the Israelites from slavery into freedom in the promised land is likened in the New Testament to deliverance out of slavery to sin. Okay, over and over again, Paul and the other epistle writers in the New Testament say, You have been slaves to sin, you are now being ransomed or freed by God. Okay, and uh, Paul addresses the Christian churches as a royal priesthood and a holy nation okay this is echoing the passages in exodus and also in leviticus and deuteronomy books that deal with the exodus from egypt and refer to it and say that the israelites by being freed by god they are now also being consecrated as sort of servants or priests of god and a a nation of priests So the early Christian church clearly saw itself in a way as a new Israel. Okay, now later, particular groups and subgroups of Christians and even others would also see themselves as reenacting the story of the Exodus and the Israelites. In the 1600s, there was a great revival of interest in Hebrew among Gentiles in the Christian world, right? So people wanted to learn Hebrew both in order to read the Old Testament in its original language and also in order to read the Talmud and Rabbinic commentaries and sources for a deeper understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. One of the effects of this great Hebrew revival in the 1600s was that philosophers made new arguments that their own societies should mimic that of the ancient Israelites, right? So that they should adopt a Republican government, uh, they should adopt certain kinds of religious toleration, and in these ways they should follow the sort of model of life presented by the Hebrews in the Old Testament. And certain states, like for example the Dutch Republic, really presented themselves as the kind of new israel or the new israelites which is very interesting considering that there were actual jews living among them at that time and in the 1640s one particular rabbi in the netherlands jacob jehuda leon actually built an elaborate model of solomon's temple a scale model which he believed was an accurate recreation of the temple according to the bible the talmud and other sources and he charged admission, it became sort of a tourist attraction to view this temple model, and reportedly he even was paid for his services by the Dutch Republic. Now why would they pay this rabbi to build a scale model of Solomon's temple? Well, one reason is that the idea was floated that the Dutch should actually rebuild the temple in the Netherlands, because they in their struggle, For independence against Spain were, in a sense, the new Israel and the new Israelites reenacting the exodus, which then should culminate eventually in the building of the temple, okay? At the same time, during the English Civil War, many English uh, Puritans and radical Protestants saw England as in some way the new Israel, and the general who led the new model army for parliament, Oliver Cromwell, called himself Moses, and others also sometimes called him the new Moses, okay, and, and they saw Cromwell's rule in the, the commonwealth, in the English commonwealth, during the interregnum as sort of a new Israelite kingdom. Not surprisingly, a lot of these same English Puritans and, and Protestant separatists who emigrated from England to America also saw themselves as Israelites. Okay, the, the so-called pilgrims who resettled in the Plymouth Colony sometimes referred to that colony as Little Israel. Okay, Puritan propagandists who promoted this project of settling New England uh, called uh, the governor of, uh, of the Plymouth Colony a new Moses, and later Cotton Mather, the first sort of great prolific... Puritan scholar in New England called all of New England a sort of new Israel and saw these early pilgrims as, as Israelites. We see in sermons that early settlers, even on the ships, going to settle the New England colonies in 1630 called this new colonial venture a city on a hill. And later, during the American Revolution, many generations later, there were was a common notion that the American Revolutionary Republic was going to be a kind of new Israel. Again, you know, in the same sort of vein as the Dutch Republic, seeing itself as a new Israel as it fought for independence from Spain. And if we actually look at the proposals that American statesmen put forward for the seal of the United States in 1776, we see that they wanted, at least at that early stage in 1776, to directly invoke Exodus and to cast themselves as as sort of the new Israelites. Uh, and Benjamin Franklin put forward a proposal for what the seal of the United States should look like, and he said, quote, it, it should show, quote, Moses standing on the shore and extending his hand over the sea thereby causing the same to overwhelm pharaoh who is sitting in an open chariot a crown on his head and a sword in his hand rays from a pillar of fire in the clouds reaching to moses to express that he acts by command of the deity and the motto he proposed should be rebellion to tyrants is obedience to god okay and so we see in proposals like this the same sort of thinking that that the old testament and particularly the Book of Exodus, condemn monarchy and call for freedom, freedom from oppression and also some sort of republican government rather than monarchy. This comes up in the 1600s and resurfaces again later in the American Revolution. And at the same time, on the same committee, Thomas Jefferson recommended that the seal should show a depiction of the children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night on the front of the seal. Okay, so this sort of uh, reference and this idea that America echoes the the Israelite, uh, you know, the miracles and the liberation of the Israelites, it's there in the American Revolution. It gets, in a way, obscured and falls by the wayside over time. But one group of people that, again, takes it up and really embraces this idea of America as the new Israel is the Mormons, or the Latter-day Saints, right? Who who see themselves as devotees of both of Christianity and of the new prophecies of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints, and who see themselves particularly as sort of the the true Israelite tribe, venturing out into the wilderness, right? And eventually led by the new Moses, which is Brigham Young, right? The, the leader who takes them to, to Utah. And around this same time, or just after, we also see the same myth applied, embraced and applied by African Americans, okay? So early on in the history of of African slavery in the Americas, in the 1600s and through most of the 1700s, slaveholders generally didn't want to Christianize their slaves, right? That was seen as dangerous in all kinds of ways, politically and and theologically. They didn't want to do that, and it was rather particular missionaries like Moravians and Quakers who actually tried to convert slaves to Christianity, often against the slaveholders' wishes. This gradually shifted after about 1800 when slavery was heavily under ideological attack from many different directions, and some slaveholders instead began to see Christianization as a possible way of justifying and defending slavery, that we are, we are introducing slaves to Christianity, we are evangelizing them, and that justifies the, our enslavement or our, our, the slave trade and the holding of slaves. However, it carried enormous risks that could backfire. Of course, if you give slaves the book of Exodus, they're likely to take a message from it that slaveholders don't like. And it seems from the earliest spirituals that we can find, uh, so-called Negro spirituals, that the book of Exodus provided a model... And not surprisingly, many African Americans also saw themselves as the new Israelites. Okay? You, you may know that Harriet Tubman, who led hundreds of slaves out of slavery and led them to escape to freedom in, uh, in Pennsylvania in the 1850s, that she was colloqu- colloquially called Moses. If you go to an American Passover Seder today, one song that you very well might hear that's commonly sung at Seders is Go Down Moses, okay, which begins, uh, you know, when Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go, oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. This song is first recorded, the earliest uh, reference to it we know of is as a song sung by so-called contrabands or runaway slaves at Fortress Monroe in Virginia, right? So these were escaped slaves who had been slaves in Confederate territory who had been able to escape to Union lines and had basically been put to work at the Union-held fortress, uh, Fortress Monroe. And they are recorded as having sung this song and so in, in, in the summer of 1862, right? So several months before the Emancipation Proclamation, right? At a time when the, the status, the legal status of ex-slaves or escaped slaves who were called contrabands was in limbo, right? And there was not yet any federal policy to free slaves in the South, right? And the people who actually reportedly sang this song were in this kind of legal and political limbo. Would they be treated as free persons? Would they be used for slave labor by the government? Would they be returned to their masters? This was all uncertain. And so we can see the song in this context as a kind of political statement and as a call for Lincoln and the Union and the Union Army to Take up the role of Moses, right? To take up this call and this mission of going southward and freeing the slaves. Okay, which eventually is what ended up uh, happening. And later reports from interviews with Harriet Tubman actually say we we don't know necessarily that this is true because the source comes a bit later. But from years later, we know that Harriet Tubman said that she used that song Go Down Moses also as a code song, a sort of signal to spread the word among slaves in Maryland that she was coming and that someone was going to lead them out to freedom. In later years, from the 1890s up through the 20th century, other African-American groups uh, formed in in the African diaspora Who called themselves New Israelites, who believe that they are in some way descended, whether literally or spiritually, from Israelites who left Egypt. And particularly the Rastafari, right? A sort of religious group that first formed in Jamaica. It's not entirely clear exactly when they started, but somewhere around 1900 or so, this new spiritual movement began in Jamaica which reinterpreted the Hebrew Bible and argued that the real Zion, the real promised land of the Israelites is is not actually Canaan, but Africa, and more specifically Ethiopia, right? And they paid a sort of special religious reverence and devotion to Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, saw him as a sort of new Moses and a new Solomon. And some of these Rastafari actually organized not only in Jamaica and the Caribbean but actually emigrated to Ethiopia, right? And if you go to Ethiopia today, there are some towns still there that were settled by by Jamaican Rastafaris, right? Who who adhere to to this this mythology and again who see themselves as the real Israelites or the real successors of the Israelites, right? And for them, the return is, is not simply a return through the Red Sea, but a return back across the Atlantic, right? To what they believe is their homeland, okay? So in this way, the, the, the myth of Exodus is kind of infinitely usable, infinitely repeatable, because arguably it captures in mythic form a struggle both against exile and against oppression and slavery, which is continually happening and being reenacted over and over again all through human history. So thank you so much for listening. And I will have more Myths of the Month, uh, but hopefully soon I should be producing more lectures in, in the same vein about The early modern era, and also I will start another series on the history of the United States in 100 Objects. And those will be uh, freely publicly available, uh, but alternate back and forth with those that are for patrons only, like this one. So thank you again so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.